Hi, I'm Ian DeLisi. Welcome to episode 28 of Essential Conversations. You're about to hear my conversation with performance artist, musician, author, Lori Anderson. This interview was done in 1994 when she released her book, Stories from the Nerve Bible, a retrospective 1972 to 1992. And she was preparing to release an album titled Bright Red. Not surprising, she was thoughtful and funny, talking with that beautiful and captivating voice of hers. We were listening to some of your old stuff, and mm-hmm. how do you feel when you hear it? When you listen to, especially United States, what it, it's just an epic work. I mean, yeah, even if there's almost nothing going on in it, like just a voice, I think, now, why didn't I use that other word instead of that one? You know, I'm really hypercritical of this stuff, so I can't sit back and, and kind of go, great song. <laughs> I just have never been able to do that no matter what. How do you feel about what you're working on now? I mean, how different is this from the last album? I mean, I thought Strange Angels was quite different from anything you had done. Yeah, and this, the record that I'm just finishing now called Bright Red is also a um, pretty different breed than the other ones, too. That's coming, coming out in August. But I was just telling you, you know, when I hear the, the clumsy mix moves in other songs, I, I think, Great! I'm about to make some other clumsy mix moves in this new mix I'm doing in a couple of weeks. You know, I don't think you can ever really quite get it right, but I'm gonna, you know, give it a try. It's an interesting album. There's, I'm co-producing it with Brian Eno, and it's been really fun working with him. When you waited through all of that material to put this album or this book together, how did it feel to go back through your career and look at all this stuff? I dreaded doing this book. You know, I was asked by an editor. I've done a few books with the same company, HarperCollins, before, and they asked about three years ago, can you do like a retrospective book, 20 years? And I thought, oh, man, this is going to be difficult. I don't know. If you ever get a chance to do this, pass on it. (laughs) Honest. You you have to go through cardboard boxes. Seems like they do belong to someone else, really. And unreal roles rolls of Super 8 film that's, you know, and and blow it up and take stills of it and then try to make sense of, of it. And actually, by the time I was done with the book, I did see some things that, that linked all of this, this work together. You know, plastering a room with pieces of paper with sort of themes written on it. And then their opposite would be on the opposite wall. And then gradually, for example, um, although it's roughly chronological, there would be things like cars, angels, language, lies, you know, and they'd, this is my wallpaper in one of the rooms, and then winnowing it down to, to something that looked more like 50 chapters. It, it was pretty amazing, and I was surprised at how detailed all of the, I mean, you shared a lot of electronic information and staging and, and how some of these projects actually worked. Are there any of those works that you would that you look back and say, I'm really proud of that, I, or that you are impressed now? If somebody else had come to you with that piece, that you would say, I'm pretty impressed by that. Something that stood the test of time with you. I actually like a lot of it, to tell you the truth. Uh, but I, I have to say, too, that I obviously did edit the book. And I put in, I guess, three or four things that I considered real failures and tried to, in a way, point out what, what I thought was not so great about them. For example, there, there was a sound sculpture that I did, which was you walk into a gallery. This is late 70s or something. And, and there's a sort of sidewalk of light. And then 
little sensors that tell you where you are in the room. And as you walk down this sidewalk of light, you hear sounds from a, an array of speakers that are also in the same line. In one direction, you hear note, and backwards, you hear tone. And I was working with a lot of sort of palindrome things and interact, early proto-interactive work. And uh, so even when I was doing the piece, I thought, what's the point here, really? I mean, it's like sort of too <laughs> clever. You know, it's kind of one of these things that's better on paper. You don't really need to do it, actually. So, but I put that in anyway, just because it was part of a whole sort of time when I was interested in doing things backwards. After reading the book, I thought, how does this person who primarily work, do you primarily work alone? Do the ideas come when you're alone? Yeah, they do. How do you continue, especially working alone, to push the boundaries of your own mind, let alone everyone else's? I mean, you've never, it seems to me, had a problem making people think and being a thought-provoking artist, no matter what you're doing. But how do you make yourself? How well, do you push? Or is this just how your brain works? I mean, is it just up there and it comes out? I think probably the answer is that I, I really try. And I'm an obsessive type of person. Plenty of days I sit around going, uh, that was my last idea as an artist. I'm finished. I, have, I will never have another idea. And I've been like this for... 20 years, just in despair, thinking, oh, I, I have nothing to say. I've assume, I assumed that would never happen to you. It happens several times a day, if not, <laughs> you know, and in a major way. Usually when that happens, I try to, first of all, kind of unclench, and then more or less just play with the equipment that I have, because I have a lot of tools, musical tools and visual things, and I find that if I just sort of move them around a little bit. They'll suggest things. But I think lots of artists are like that. I think every work of art is, is of course, a kind of combination of material and an idea. For example, I mean, if you really just thought that you wanted to get your ideas across, I always thought, you know, you should just write it down on a piece of paper, Xerox, and hand it out. You wouldn't, why would you bother to make paintings or, you know, anything? So it's, it's always that kind of dialogue. So I, I, that's, that's what I do when I'm in a rut. Can people be taught to be creative? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, we're all in our own traps of various kinds, and a lot of them are because we're expected to behave a certain way, dress a certain way. There's a lot of pressure on people to do things by the book. And I think that it's probably easiest when, when people are kids, you know. I mean, that's when I remember thinking, you know, like second grade, the art teacher would come in and, she or sometimes he, mostly she, would be dressed really differently from the other teachers. <laughs> and she could Remember that. she could leave, you know. And she kind of go, What do you all want to do? And I was going, Wow, I wanna be her. <laughs> this is this is you know, she didn't have to go by any of those rules. So yeah, I think I think people can be encouraged to get out of their ruts and make things and Think about things differently. I guess we don't necessarily live in a society that nurtures that in, in very many ways. And well, Yeah, no, we live in a country that loves conformity, loves uniforms, loves rules, you know, in, in a big way, you know. And I think uh, even in terms of, like, music, people are encouraged to like only a certain kind of thing because that's the way it's marketed. Music is certainly part of what I do, but I, I've always really liked doing lots of different projects and I never thought, wow, I really want to 
have a lot of people hear my work. You know, I was never ambitious in that way. You know, I'm kind of, it's not that I'm lazy really, but I never thought like the more people like the work, the better the work. In fact, I'd probably tend to think the opposite. You know? Why do so many of us think that though? I mean, the, the thing is, oh, as soon as everyone starts liking you, there's a problem. Right, yeah. Well, because people are, you know, especially when things are so standardized, you know, if you get, it's like any sports team, you know, or, or like a, you know, you follow this one basketball player and only you and a few people know about him. And then then he's doing, he's playing the same game, and, but suddenly more people notice and know he's, then he sold out. He was, you know, he's not good anymore. <laughs> it's, it makes it special, you know. You it's seem a, to have walked that line very nicely, though. A lot of people know who you are, but I don't hear people saying Laurie Anderson sold out. Well, I think in terms of the art world, they, they did say that at a certain point. How long ago? And I think when I signed a record contract. I was kind of embarrassed of it, too. I didn't really want to do that. The reason I did was suddenly a record that I had was, was I got a lot of orders for. I only had a 1,000 copies, and, and, the, and the BBC started calling saying, hello, could you send 40,000 copies of this record? And, you know, I was like <laughs> I, looking around the room, looking at the two cardboard boxes of this record and kind of going, can I get back to you on this? You know, <laughs> you bet. I, I'll, I'll send them right out. And so that's how I, you know, why I called Warner Brothers. They'd ask me to do an album or albums, you know, and I said, can you, can you help me on this? And they said, I said, just work on this one project. And they said, Oh, we don't do things like that. <laughs> you know, we don't do this kind of one-offs. I'm sorry. You have to sign something that says, in perpetuity, throughout the universe, you will produce albums for us. That seems so intimidating to sign on the dotted line for that. I mean, almost like they own you. Although you've had pretty much creative freedom with everything you do, don't you? Well, only because I don't think they'd really know... A, <laughs> For example, some record people come into the studio and sit in the back and go, more bass, that's, what's, that's what you need. You know, there's very little bass on stuff that I do, and there are a lot of birds, but I think they'd feel stupid sitting in the back and going, more birds. <laughs> I think you really need a lot more birds. So they don't show up, you know. I'd like to talk about technology <coughs> and electronics because it certainly is a big part of what you do. In general, I've had a very long love-hate relationship with technology. I've, I've used it since the first time I began, you know, working with, well, yeah, the first performances I did 20 years ago. And my rule was never to spend more than a dollar. So I would get stuff like, you know, what a pillow speaker is. It's a little uh, three-inch in di- diameter shaped like a, a kind of... Um, large pill, horse pill or something, and it's a speaker, you know, that you're supposed to use, put in your pillow, and, you know, so you can learn German in your sleep, stuff like that. I, I tried that. I woke up feeling, you know, incredibly paranoid. That was <laughs> my reaction. And being an oral person, I decided, well, I'm going to see what happens if I put this in my mouth. And so I recorded some violin stuff, and then put the speaker in my mouth, and by opening and closing your mouth, you can kind of get some kind of interesting phasing on it. Of course, volume changes, stuff like that. And also the potential for electrocution is always like a kind of a <laughs> thrill. Since then, I've, I've been 
I've worked with lots of different kinds of tech stuff and on all kinds of levels, from real simple home, homemade things, pulling stuff apart, or in the process of trying to fix things, breaking them in a new way, making them do something they didn't do before. For example, uh, a drum... I remember trying to fix a little crummy drum machine, and there was something wrong with some of the connections. I was soldering some stuff and realized that there was a whole a bunch of extra cable in there that could be remoted. So I thought, I'm going to remote these little sensors. And so I put them into the, you know, sort of taped them on different parts of my body and then became, it was, it was really fun, this kind of human drum suit. So you hit your heart and you hear the ba-boom. <laughs> and kind of put a snare on a knee so you have this like kind of trick knee. And then um, castanets and hand claps, hidden various other spots. Now, my relationship te- to technology is is pretty much still in that I still love it and use it, but it's it's always in the uh, service of a story. You know, it always has been really. And in writing the book, the biggest thing, one of the biggest things I realized was this: first of all, tendency to pyromania, starting with burning a lot of my early work and then realizing that sitting around fires is is about storytelling, really, and that electronics are modern fires and they have a lot to do with that kind of narrative and that kind of, with well, with fire in terms of danger and speed and uh, destruction and attraction. Now I have an, an incredibly cynical attitude towards a lot of <laughs> things. I was just reading, you know, I can't remember the author's name. It's a really great book called Digital Woes and very jaundiced look at the data superhighway and a lot of stuff that's that's um, sort of leeching its way into the culture. For example, she's describing this software for parallel parking your car <laughs> that you can have little sensors that get you in with them in about an eighth of an inch clearance, you know. But she says, okay, so you, you park your car, you go to the movies, you come back, you're parked between two of these super monsters, and you don't have the software, right? So the point is, unless we all have the same software, it's not really going to do people a whole lot of good. And anyway, my, my own reaction to this, this sort of like image of the data superhighway is, I don't know, I mean, I, I think that it's just another thing that, that, in a way, tries to glorify technology but doesn't have a lot of the ingredients that are needed to get people really excited. In other words, like the Gulf War, ego was a big ingredient and uh, righteousness was and winning was. I mean, all enveloped in the same package of we have tech that works. In fact, later we found out it didn't work so well. But at the time, you know, it was a giant trade show in the sky. And we were like, yes, this works. We're great. You know, and this bombastic celebration of this thing. It was really unbelievable. Coming up in part two of my interview with Laurie Anderson, we talk about her use of technology, dealing with men, changing her voice to that of a man, and storytelling. WDET celebrates 75 years of public radio with gratitude to our dedicated listeners. Listeners like you cherish community voices, local music, and independent journalism. This spring fundraiser, we're counting on your support, just as you count on us. Invest in WDET's next chapter at WDET.org or tap Donate in the mobile app.
Andalisi, and here's part two and the conclusion of my conversation with Lori Anderson. When it comes to telling a story, and you work in so many different mediums, how do you decide on which is the best way to tell your story? Well, a lot of times it's uh, the other elements in the stories, other than words, are um, amplify it in some ways or locate it. So there's some spaciousness that's happening in the background or some claustrophobic kind of thing in, in terms of sound and in terms of color or image. It's sort of a subtext. But also, if you're just working with words, it, there's still like a million things you can do with it. In, in a performance situation, you can look at them, you know, or which is a very different experience, obviously, than reading them. You know, I mean, sometimes when I do like really big shows that have all this stuff, I, I think wow, maybe this looks like a trade show. That would be horrible. You know, it's all these <laughs> videos and films and monitors and smoke. And, you know, I kind of think, oh, man, this is like, hey, look, all this stuff works. Look, look. <laughs> it's so great. But your performances change so much. I mean, there are the parts in, in your performances where you are up there talking. And I have to say that sometimes those are the times when you have everybody right there. Yeah, you I mean, say I actually, anything to them. Yeah, I actually enjoy the more direct it is. That's why it's like so much fun for me to do these kinds of things, reading from the book. I mean, I'm bringing some keyboards, a violin, some landscaping material, sound material, and some electronics. And But basically, I just sit there and mix it myself, which is really fun because, you know, any mistake that I make, and there are several, I at least know what it is and how to correct it, get around it. It's not like being in the big machine that a show can be, you know, with musicians and stuff. And How do you feel when you're up there alone? I mean, you certainly seem very comfortable, but are you ever nervous about it? I try to get nervous about it, put it that way. <laughs> I don't. But, uh, you know, I, I suppose I'm like a narcissistic, egotistical show-off, you know? I like the attention, hey, you know, somehow, I guess. And these, this little tour... There's a kind of question and answer thing afterwards, and that's really fun for me. I get the chance to. That is a great idea. Yeah, yeah it's you ever really done it fun. Before? Yeah, I have in like more like when I give really informal talks, and this is the first time at, as part of a sort of quasi formal reading that I've done that. So it's I really like it. It's just great. I, I've seen you a few times, and I, I missed your last performance when, um, which was much more political, and. I, Oh, the political tirade, yeah. I, <laughs> okay, I guess that's what we'll call it. But, I mean, your your earlier work, when I saw you live, it was a lot of fabulous observations, a lot of stuff that are there every day and you don't notice. Mm-hmm. It's a little different now, especially with the political tirade. Mm-hmm. What made you change? Well, I, I would say that what I'm doing now is more similar to the first thing you described. But I did go through a time, I guess, you know, late 80s when all the censorship stuff was, was happening. You know, Two Live Crew and Maplethorpe and Jesse Helms and all that stuff. And people kept asking me, you know, to give talks on free speech or, you know, wh- how do artists react to this kind of censorship. And I got so interested in that. I thought, well, there's so much to think about here in terms of... What is the real relationship of Puritanism and violence in this country? How do they link up? And so that's what this talk became. It turned into a three-hour 
tirade, you know, stalking around this state. You know, I'd show up and they I think the promoters thought it was going to be some kind of concert with music and you know. And then I was in such a bad mood, you know, all the censorship stuff really made me angry and I thought, well, I don't want to embed this anger or these thoughts into a song and sort of, you know, it's how dweeby, you know. I just want to say it in the simplest way possible. And that's became a kind of soapboxy thing. And I think some people kind of went, hey, wait a second, I didn't come here to be lectured. But I, I, couldn't, I, I couldn't help it. I, I just, I really couldn't because it was, um, it's still on my mind, but I, I've kind of gotten over the stage of waving, <laughs> waving my flags around. I'm curious as to how men reacted to you and what you were doing especially in the early days. Yeah, I noticed this first in Germany because that's where I was touring the most first. And so I'd get there and, you know, there'd be these tech guys who were supposed to help me set up. They were not familiar with any of the equipment that I brought. So I'd be setting up. They'd be over in the corner going, eh, was ist das? And, you know, <laughs> Frau, yeah. They didn't really didn't dig that a woman was doing plugging stuff in. It was really considered pretty much a male province. So... I realized this was really ticking them off, and so I would just unplug something or give them something to do and go throw up my hands and go, can you give me a hand on this? Just as sort of an experiment. They suddenly got incredibly friendly, you know, because <laughs> they can fix it. Anyway, it was, I thought, oh, I don't want to play this. I don't want to play with people like this. That's not, that's just using them. But it did make me angry because when I when I spoke, for example, with my own voice, you know, I was listened to with, you know, sort of indulgence and, oh, an artist, uh, interesting. But when I used a filter that would change my voice to that of a male, so it would talk like that, you know, electronically filtered, then I was listened to with respect, you know. And and I thought, aha, and this is what I now think of as the, this filter that's called the voice of authority. And I realized these are people who like to be bossed. And fortunately... I like the boss. <laughs> so I had, I've had a lot of fun with that filter, mostly making fun of it because it's like, it's so it's such a preposterous voice. Like any kind of wheedling salesman or anyone who's trying to be on top and stay there, you know. And so that's why I think of it that way. Some, some whatever authority figure you're trying to make it be, it sort of will be that. Do you use it much anymore? Sometimes, yeah. But I have a lot of different kinds of filters. I mean, that that yeah, that's a useful one. But um, <laughs> it's it's really as kind of masks. Really, that's the purpose of them. I I do it to get out of my own perspective, which is, I mean, I define myself first as an artist, second, a New Yorker, third as a woman, and that gives me a certain slant when I look at things. So if I have a voice like that. Or a voice like that, you know, and I just play around with a lot of different kinds of filters and stuff in my studio. If I sound like that, I feel like, it's like I think like that. I see things like, from that point of view. And and I find that really valuable to really try to really be on the other side of the room, looking at it from below or above or whatever. I am really curious, especially after reading your book and seeing these really old photos of you and all these things that you did, and I thought, what kind of a kid were you? <laughs> I, I was a nerd. I was uh, got there early to feed the fish. Uh, 
When, when did all of these? I mean, were you very creative as a kid? I kind of got lost in the crowd. You know, I was, you know, I came from a big family, four four brothers and three sisters, and we were all doing stuff all the time. I didn't think of myself very much at all. I was trying to, you know, <laughs> trying to get a little privacy for one thing. Right, get my bike out of the garage and get out of there was my main goal. What did your parents think of when, when you started doing your work? It came to some things, but I, I had moved to another city. From I grew up near Chicago and then moved to New York, so I didn't really have a lot of... I didn't have to explain anything to them ever. They would come to my shows. My father would heckle occasionally. <laughs> that was a lot of fun. He's not shy. Let's put it that way. And he'd you know, speak <laughs> up. He's like a, testifying. Because this interview with Laurie Anderson happened back in 1994, there was some dated content that I took out. But as we wrapped up, her observations were timeless. Culture is sort of treated like it's socked away in a museum, locked up. It's treated, it is money. It becomes a form, a, a way to, it's traded like that, treated like that. And it's, we often don't give it a chance to really affect us or change us or, you know, it just becomes another consumer thing that just reinforces our own ideas of, oh, now I know who I am, you know, because that was the weird thing about, like, writing this book for me is stories from the Nerve Bible. I thought, well, this is supposed to be my autobiography, at least as an artist. And it made me think, you know, so what am I then? I, is it just a collection of stories? You know, when you have to describe yourself to someone, you tell them stories about mm-hmm. what you did or, you know, who you were as a kid. And, and then you think, is, is that who I am? You know, or what else? You know, and so I, I, I want to work on a place where you can be involved in mystery, you know, not so much just like another thrill ride or... You know, you're so anesthetized, you can't feel a thing, so you have to get yourself dropped off a cliff so you'll feel <laughs> anything at all. You know, but, you, you know, I'm saying, you know, just sort of like a little bit more involved in this life, not just sort of brushing through it. You know? I have two minutes left, and I have one question for you. If you could have been born at any other time in our history, as a woman, when would it have been? Mm. Can it be the future as well? Yeah. Oh, good. Okay. Uh, let's see. Now, I would have liked to have been born at, in around 6,000 B.C. And uh, principally so I could do some historical rewrites. <laughs> I would rewrite the real Bible. And I'd, I'd put, first of all, put more women in it. That's for sure. And they'd have like, they'd be doing riskier things. They wouldn't just be like hanging <laughs> over there with the shepherds going... Duh. Or they'd, you know, they wouldn't be have the little bangles on dancing. They'd be writing uh, and changing things and making a few laws of their own. 